Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number four with Scott Moulton. Hey, Scott, how you doing? Doing great. How are you? Pretty good. Well, I just wanted to say uh, our, this show is being sponsored by the PodNuts official laptop repair video collection, which is finally released. You could check it out at podnuts.com. If you guys ever wanted to learn how to repair laptops, and it's a good idea if you ha- have a computer repair business, instead of sending that business off somewhere else, if you know how to do it, then you can do it yourself and you can increase the profits of your business. Definitely check that out. They were just released on September 1st, so they're fresh off the press. Scott, a lot of the listeners are wondering, when you get drives into your business there, what's the biggest problem or annoyance that you run into when you try to fix them and recover the data off of them? Well, I got to say one of the one of the biggest problems that I see, and uh, you know, I guess you know, part of the issue is, is that a, a lot of the people who listen to the podcast and stuff are, that send me drives uh, are do-it-yourselfers. And so they've seen a lot of my videos, and that tends to be where most of my, you know, I don't have official marketing or anything for selling drives. So most of my, my client base is actually the people who have seen the videos or listened to the podcasts, and, and, and I love those people. They're, they're great. One of the things that has been a problem, though, is that because they've seen all these videos and I talk about, you know, in a 50-minute presentation how to open a drive and kind of determine what's wrong with the drive and go through the process to fix your own, some of these people want to send the drive in to me to repair and they're they're double-checking to see, oh, is the is the platter scratched or is there some other problem before uh, I send it in to Scott so maybe I can save some money or something. But what they don't realize or what I was never able to say really in the videos because, you know, sometimes it's in a conference or it's, you know, something that's, you know, 50 minutes and you got to kind of get a lot of information out really quick um, is that Western Digital drives are one of the drives that they they don't want to open. Do not open Western Digital drives. So I need to start putting out this disclaimer to try to get people to stop opening Western Digital drives. Uh, if they want to verify, you know, Seagate drives and most of the other drives, um, you know, even without a clean room and stuff, it's usually not a big problem. But Western Digital Drives, once you take the screws out of the lid, the lid is actually part of the uh, alignment. And the screws that go through the lid, through a a portion of the uh, head assembly itself, are used for alignment of that head assembly on the platters. So since people can't determine what their problem is, they are sometimes making it a lot worse for me when they ship it into me and it's already been opened or they've already already looked at the content on the drive. Um, if the head assembly, if you play with that lid, the head assembly becomes misaligned and you can't get that alignment back without spending several hours of time. Western Digitals are terrible about that from a standpoint of trying to get them realigned after you've taken the lid off. So if you have more than one problem, let's say the problem was firmware or board or something, once they've taken the lid off, it's almost impossible for me to tell or get it back to that state so that I can fix it from the original board and the head assembly. It just makes it very difficult for me to to go through that process. So I need for people to stop opening Western Digital drives before they send them in or, or want to do something. If they're going to send them in for recovery anyway, they should not be opening the drive. They should only be opening a drive in an instance where they're going to try to do their own recovery. And I'm okay with that. I'm, I, that's why I publish the videos and that's why I put it out there is that you know if they're not going to spend you know somewhere between $800 and $2,000 on a drive, then, then they can try to do the recovery themselves. It, but it's, if, it's good advice, but it's a little tough for them to follow that, I think, because, you know, you taught them, you know, how to do it or, or, you know, the basics of what to do. 
they want to attempt it. It's that it would probably be tempting. Like I, I just know from me personally, if I had a drive and I saw your videos and I'd be like, well, let me give it a shot. And then I'll be like, Oh, this is too hard or this is not going to work for me. So I'll send it in to you. That's, that's a tough situation you're in, but in Western digitals, that's a big uh, percentage of the drives probably that you get in, isn't it? Yeah, it, it certainly is. But if they, if they start playing with them, like for instance, the higher end drives, like the 500 gigs and things like that for Western digitals, they have a particular firmware problem and opening the drive you know, with a 500 gig drive, with the number of heads that's there, it's the, it makes the alignment just almost impossible to get right again. It takes wow. hours and hours and hours. Wow. So, I'm just saying, most of the time, what you're going to have with some of those drives is going to be a firmware problem, not necessarily a head or a scratch platter. That'd so, good. so avoid, you know, opening <laughs> that lid. But you're you're right. But one of the things that I find, yeah, um, that you would think because uh, you know these people do see my videos and they do want to try to do it themselves is that maybe they'll go they should go to their pile of like some you know old drives they have sitting over in a corner and go play with those first and see if they can disassemble and reassemble it or something before they try yeah. the drive with the real data on it good idea that's a good they're not, idea they're not doing that they're they're just jumping like I've actually get emails that go hey how do I find uh, this you know donor drive so I can do a head replacement on this drive right. and I'm like well did you try you know six other drops before you got that far. I mean, I'm sure you got a stack of old ones. You can find out how hard it is to do this head assembly, but they're really working for the first time on the very first drive. I see. So that's a little, yeah, that's a little risky. Yeah. It's uh, even in my classes, when I teach the classes, the guys who are in the classes who have had some experience with doing some of this already, who really aren't that successful at it before the class, um, they, they don't hardly, almost no one gets the first three or four drives that they do huh. in the class while I'm mentoring them. <laughs> it's not till they get to the fifth and the sixth drive that they actually start getting drives reassembled and are able to do something. And, you know, and they've got the advantage of me standing there and mentoring them and showing them how to do it in person. And uh, it still doesn't work until you get to the fourth or fifth drive. So it's, it's really important that if they're going to try to do their own recoveries, that maybe they should... Yeah. play around with older drives yeah. first. That must be frustrating, not being able to get it to like the fourth or fifth one. Um, uh, I know like in my shop, when I, when I, I've opened only a few drives in my life and I did it after I w- resigned to the fact that I couldn't fit, I couldn't fix it, you know, any other way. And I already told the customer, look, um, your drive is not recoverable by me or something. You know what I mean? Like I wasn't planning on sending it out anywhere to get it recovered. I told them like, you know, your drive's not recoverable. Um, and they they were okay with that, and they wanted a new hard drive and just to reinstall the operating system. So it basically said, okay, well now that they know that and that disclaimer is out to them, now I could take a look at their drive and if I could fix it, fine. If not, it's not going to be a huge deal. And um, what what I wanted to ask you, Scott, was on these Western Digital drives. You're talking about the front plate. Aren't see? Aren't those screws that hold that plate on? Aren't they all around the edges? Or they actually go through the center in, in different parts on those drives? They, uh, they do, sometimes you will have two other screws besides the ones that you can see. There's usually yeah. six around the edge. Sometimes there's seven around the edge. And then under the label? Be, yeah, there'll be one under the label towards the bottom of the drive where the IDE or the SATA connector is. There'll I be see. one that actually goes to the head assembly itself. That's actually the head assembly sits on a post. Basically, it's the you've seen you've all seen a picture of it where you have like the voice coil on the back and it's all wrapped in copper and then coming out towards the end where you have the heads and it looks like, you know, an arrow or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's like a hole being drilled through the arrow and you're suspending it on a post. And so the screw that comes through the top in the lid, there's like a little dimple that comes down. 
that touches the top of that assembly and the screw that goes through it is tightened and torqued to just the right parameters so that that head is perfectly aligned so that it can communicate with the drive without uh, any major discomfort from that standpoint. Are so, you serious? So Western Digital does that and the other companies just do it from the inside, I gather, right? Yeah, uh, most of the other companies have, um, so for instance, like most Seagate drives or other drives, they'll have uh, they'll have two or three different ways to do it, but typically the assembly itself, the head assembly is actually bound by a screw on the top or the actual uh, core where it's screwed in is actually a flathead screw that's part of the assembly as right, it goes through. Right. Now, some of them will still have a screw that goes through the top in the dimple to to screw into that, but it it's already it's already screwed down. It's I already see. screwed to the to the assembly, and uh, they're changing airflow by taking off the lid. So you will get a change in air pressure and how high the heads can fly over the platter. But for the most part, the biggest problem is you know is the alignment done by this particular uh, dimple and wow. screw. Do you think it's poor design that they do that, or is it just they, they don't care? They don't they don't care about getting data recovered off of it, or what? Well, I mean, all the drive manufacturers they made the drive to try to be reliable on the front end. They're not they're not worried about the data recovery side from that standpoint. That may be a more recent. Uh, you know, people may be starting to think about it in terms of can we reverse engineer this and fix this problem or something. But okay. that was not their primary concern. It was you know let's make this thing functional and reliable, and all the things that we're doing in data recovery are just reverse engineering whatever the complex problems are that they've created for us. Um, so I don't think it's a poor design necessarily. Uh, it works perfectly fine for for the process that they have, and right. there's no reason for us to tamper with that if that's not the problem. Right. Um, but it does make our job – I mean, because if I was going to design a drive, I would be thinking in terms of, well, what, what, how do I do this for data recovery right. and more reliability? Right. But the, the truth of the matter is, is that if we did, as data recovery people, design drives, we would make them a lot lower density. They would probably still be longitudinal. I mean, we would probably have sacrificed uh-huh. a lot of different things to, and so you wouldn't have the sizes that you have today. You wouldn't have, you know, two and a half terabyte drives and things, but I mean. Still, that might be a good market, Scott. I mean, now you're talking about it, like super reliable drives, you know, however you well, can market Well, we that. have those. They're called SCSI. <laughs> <laughs> Or at least the old school SCSI. You know, some of, <laughs> Do some people of the still school. use SCSI? Yeah, all the servers. All Anybody who's got a server of any kind, a major server, they're all still relying on SCSI. Okay. Not, none of the, I mean, some of the mass storage boxes and stuff that are out, yeah, they're using IDE drives and stuff. And if they're in a RAID array, then a drive dies, so they're okay yeah. or whatever. But for the most part, uh, SCSI is still considered the most, or SAS. I mean, SCSI is basically SAS, so, uh, or, you know, there's a number of different variations of it, but it's still SCSI hard drives. Okay. Yeah, I don't do too much with servers. I wouldn't know that. And uh, I, that was curious. You know, a customer actually brought a disk drive into the shop that was SCSI, and I didn't have anything to read it. So. They're a little more difficult, obviously. They they do slow me down. I mean, the majority of the equipment that I have is for IDE drives and not for uh, SCSI right. or, or, you know, unless I'm doing a RAID array or something like that, I have some equipment to handle that stuff. But uh, there's a whole separate set of equipment if you're dealing with SCSI stuff. But most of the stuff that we have in IDE, we inherited from SCSI. Okay. So our, our IDE drives are kind of – they're not as robust, and there's this race to you know, make them cheaper and cheaper. So you're going to sacrifice chips and equipment and quality uh, right. to get that price down. Right. So Just like everything else. Yeah. But, but SCSI drives are more reliable, huh? SCSI drives are much more reliable. I mean, I've, I've got SCSI drives. I mean, there's a ton of people who would tell you that they've had SCSI drives running for 10, 12 years. I've got, I've got drives I know that I bought in 2001 that are still in Raider Race down there that are running – you know, 
that are very robust. They're not dying. They're not having problems. I barely ever have one die. Really? Uh, whereas, you know, IDE drives, I mean, you buy a stack of, you know, book drives or something like that, they, you know, one dies every week. <laughs> well, why are they more reliable? Um, well, I think the first thing is, is that they, they were built with a lower density. So they're not, they're not these higher density drives. They're not, you know, you, you don't traditionally have a two terabyte SCSI mm-hmm. drive or something. I think you have, you know, up to like 600 gigs or something right now in SCSI drives, but they've been a lot slower and a lot slower to progress in that direction. So, you know, even up to two and three years ago, some of the highest end SCSI drives were only, you know, 300 gigs or something. So, uh, they're a lower density drive. They're made with better components, so the chips have been tested longer. The head assemblies are more robust, and even the functions for how they deal with error and error corrections and stuff is is more robust. They've been around for 30, 40 years, so <laughs> we're dealing with with content that has survived the test of time. Right now, is it safe to say that the lower a density a drive is, the more reliable? Or no? I would say yes. I would say certainly. Uh, you know, certainly there's other manufacturing things that could be played into there about reliability and stuff. But the lower density drives, the drives like, for instance, the drives we had in the 90s, people, you know, remember them being very, very robust. They, they, There wasn't a lot of problems. They were the kind of things that, you know, I've had a drive for eight years and it worked perfectly fine. I've right. never replaced it. Right. Um, the, 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 the thing about some of the lower density drives too is that so for instance the heads that they used in the 90s were a much simpler head they actually detected uh, magnetic material as it passed below it whereas the current heads use more of a, a physics uh, uh, they're, they're, there's a lot of quantum physics probably that applies here where you're actually talking about electrons that bounce around inside of an arena after the content has already passed by causing an effect that actually causes it to detect that something's been that's passed by or something along that line. Wow. So, so there's a lot more in play to right. try to, to make this complex arena work <laughs> in these higher density drives. It's getting pretty, that's getting pretty deep at that level. Wow. That's, I mean, I, I can't imagine working on something like that. What, what drives do you use then? Like in your machine, like if you wanted to go out and buy a drive for yourself because you want a reliable drive, what do you use? Like what would well, you buy? I would have to tell you that that rotates through like every six months. Like everybody who has a problem, you know, they deal with their problem and then those drives become robust and they're okay for a while. And then the next drives that come out or, you know, have some new problem or something. I would venture to say that there's very little that I even consider existing on a computer without it being on a RAID array. So no matter what drives you buy, I would say my goal, so, you know, instead of just like slapping one terabyte hard drive in your machine and using it, mm-hmm. it, you know, drives are fairly cheap today. If you're, you know, really shopping around, you might be able to get, you know, uh, you can get the one terabyte in storage and just buy 500 gig drives instead and buy three 500 gig drives, make a RAID 5 array. You'll still have one terabyte. It might've cost you $50 more right. by the time you're done, but you have, you have redundancy. Okay. So I would be more inclined to go that route as opposed to uh, just buying like a one terabyte drive to slap in your machine. So when I buy a one terabyte drive, I buy three of them and I put them in a, a machine. And usually I use a, I don't know if you've heard of FreeNAS. Have you ever used FreeNAS before? FreeNAS. What is that again? I've heard FreeNAS, of it. FreeNAS is a Linux distribution that you can download. It's only like 80 megs or so. And it basically is an entire NAS box on a CD. And so you can take an old server. You can take an old machine. So mm-hmm. I can take it, you know, a, 
uh, you know, an early Pentium or something, I can throw a cheap RAID array, a, a RAID card for a hundred bucks, which would be, uh, you know, at that point you're not talking about a discrete controller because the discrete controllers have their own processor. A host space controller would be like a hundred bucks, and it would use your processor in your machine right. to process the data. Right. But since that old machine is not going to be used as your workstation, right. you can just take an old machine, put it in the corner, put this hundred dollar card in, and put you know, three one terabyte drives in it, throw free NAS in, and in five minutes, I guarantee you can be up and running with a NAS box in your office and just use that for your storage or have your machine copied to that. So, you know, if you've got a one terabyte hard drive in your current workstation and you're expecting that to last and you're not doing a backup, you are crazy. <laughs> uh -oh. you, you, uh -oh. <laughs> yep. I'm telling you, it doesn't matter which brand you pick, uh, whether you buy a Seagate, a Hitachi, a Western Digital, uh Samsung, whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, certainly I would tell you that, you know, I'd be careful about the Samsung. I'd be a little more careful about the uh, Western Digital. You're kidding. At least, at least Seagate has already had their firmware problem and they know about it and they have repaired a lot of their problem and there's a way to do recoveries from it. Um, Western Digital drives, when they die and they have, they have a current problem that uh, the board actually has a like a fuse that's burnt on the board and you can only read 50% of the drive. And so you have to go through this process of finding a donor drive, copying your code over, resetting that board back up. And so you lose a drive in the process because that board is useless again. Um, but it, there's, there's a process for repairing that board so that you can read that content off. Uh, so it'd be nice when they actually come out with a more robust board that doesn't have this particular problem. Um, and then Hitachi right now is actually fairly stable. I, I don't really know of any major problems with Hitachi drives. Good, I just bought one. Yeah, so uh, so that would probably be my option is you know buy you know three Hitachi drives and throw them in a a you know a a RAID array or a NAS box and be up and running in a few minutes. And like I said, if you have a if you have a one terabyte drive in your local machine, yeah. I would just run a script or something that backs up to this NAS server every night. Okay, that would be the best way to go is just to have some piece of software. Or you can use something like, um, I don't know if you know SkyDrive, Microsoft's new SkyDrive. Yeah, I've heard of that. Never used it. Right. Well, it has 25 gigs free. So you sign up for it, and you get 25 gigs of space online for free. And there are a couple of tools. There's at least one tool uh, that will mount your drive, uh, will mount your SkyDrive as a local drive, and it has a built-in backup utility. So you can back up 25 gigs of data online for pretty close to free. Huh. So, uh, so that, you know, that's a way to go, at least to try to – you know, if I was going to suggest something to someone, that's what I would do. Uh, Gladinet is the name of the piece of software, G-L-A-D-I-N-E-T. And uh, you could buy this cheap piece of software, and it has a backup routine that will mount your 25 gigs as a local storage and automatically do a backup to it. Oh, so you have to buy Gladinet to use the to use a backup yeah, program Gladi with SkyDrive? Yeah, Gladinet. I mean, SkyDrive normally is done through, you know, like Internet Explorer. Mm -hmm. and you can do like web dab stuff. So you can like drag and drop stuff to do a backup. So if you want to do it manually, right. you can do that. But if you want it to happen automatically every night, kind of like Mosey backup or something would. Right, right. Um, you know, because Mosey backup is going to cost you more than that for, you know, 25 gigs of space. Do they charge so, by gigs or do they charge by month? Just unlimited. Um, now, Mosey charges by they, – they have some sort of space parameter or something. Okay. Now, it's Carbonite. Carbonite just does like a flat fee a year right. no matter what your unlimited is supposed to be. But, uh, I mean, I've heard some stories about what unlimited means to huh. everybody. So I'm sure you've heard those stories right. too. But, I mean, you know, SkyDrive, you know, is free just to sign up for. I don't know. I mean, I'm not – 
I, I don't really care who has what. I mean, you can yeah. do Google or something too. And there's drive mounting utilities for Fuse for Google so that you can use your Google space from Gmail or something hmm. to store your data. What do you think about those services like Carbonite and Mosey? Um, I'm, I'm a fan of them from a standpoint of the potential for backup and things. Right. I, I, I'm not really a great fan of, you know, what if you needed that space right away? So, for instance, if you're a corporate company and they do have a service for like if I have an exchange server and I want to back up my exchange server to their corporate service, that you could do that. And that's a scary uh, thought for me because it's going to take a lot longer to recover the data. It's great that it's there and it's offsite in case, you know, my building blows up or something. But, I, you know, I don't have three days necessarily to download my Exchange Server database okay. and get it back up and running. So you're talking my- about the internet speeds is the main problem then. Yeah, yeah, your bandwidth. If you have, you know, so if you have an Exchange Server and you're setting up a corporate client, it's nice to have this offsite backup if you can keep the, if your content is small enough that you can still send it overnight right. and keep your backups right. going. But your biggest issue is going to be, well, what is my bandwidth for getting that data back if my server crashes and I don't have another resource? So if you already have a tape backup on your server and you're still backing up your Exchange server to that tape backup, so you have that 75 gigs online somewhere, um, you know, then at least it would take care of the major disaster problem. So right. what if what if there's a flood? And I lose my equipment and my tape backup dies too. Right. You know, what what are your options? Or what if, you know, somebody steals all of my tapes right. or something? Um, so, so the main the main problem with those services then and any service like that for offsite over the internet is just bandwidth. Right. It is it is almost strictly bandwidth from that standpoint. There is also the, you know, how much space do they have and that you're trusting that someone else like years ago Carbonite had a problem because they had originally hired a Promise or they had bought Promise equipment okay. and they used Promise for their mass storage servers that they had. And there was some major failure either in the Promise controllers that was causing corruption in data or something and so they lost like, you know, 500 ter- I don't remember how much it was, Jeez. but it was a large it was it was a large some of the amount of space that they had. And so they went through this whole, and it's public, their, their lawsuits and stuff are public and things. But, um, but you know, that's kind of the other side of that is that, you know, who do you trust? Are you right. trusting them a hundred percent? You know, and if that's your only source of backup, then maybe you want to consider two or three or, you know, right. triple redundancy in right. some fashion so that you don't hmm. put all your eggs in one basket. Hmm. Good stuff, man. I, I know what I'm going to buy this weekend. I'm going to go get a... I actually have a, a Junko computer I could use. I'm going to set up a RAID array for the first time. So You say RAID 5, right? Yeah, I would not do anything less than RAID 5. If you can do RAID 6, great. The problem with RAID 6 is that you're probably not going to find a $100 controller. Oh. So Because you know the issue becomes processing power. So if you bought like a $300 three-wear controller or something, you might be able to get one that supports, you know, RAID 6. I haven't really looked to see. But RAID 6 would add an additional drive-in for redundancy because your problem with RAID 5, as we've discussed before, is that one drive dies and your system's still running, and you put another drive in and it's got to rebuild on the on the additional drive. What happens if the, one of the drives dies during that process? Right. What about then, RAID 6? RAID 6 would have an additional drive that was already there for redundancy. Oh. So you would already have additional parity that's distributed across all the drives. It actually adds it into the array, makes two of the drives kind of like not really a hot spare. I don't want to say a hot spare because the parity is distributed across all the drives. 
Um, but it would it would give you that one that's already built again. So if another, you could have two drives fail and still be okay. Jeez. Yeah, we're getting to the point where it's like, you know, 0.0001% chance that anything could go wrong with your data. Well, there's plenty of things that can go wrong with your data. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, I believe it. You would probably know more than anyone. Yeah, I see a lot of it. But I mean, RAID 5 is great if you're still doing some process for backup. I don't trust data ever just in one location. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm a big fan of, so, I mean, so if you were trying to think of redundant ways to do things and you were, cause this is where you get into disaster planning and I've done corporate disaster planning for medium, you know, size companies, you know, hundred users plus kind of thing. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's always about what's the cheapest way to get the most that you can do redundant and, and be the safest. So for instance, if you were able to use say a cheap service like Carbonite or something and get some of your data offsite then that's one method. You still have a tape backup. But maybe what you do in addition to that is uh, you do have your RAID 5 array and there's always a chance that one of the drives can die at the same time that it's being rebuilt. You could still have cheap storage. So you could do like this free NAS box that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. or you can just go out and buy a bunch of cheap one terabyte hard drives and daily sync those drives and put them in the trunk of somebody's car and drive them away Right. every, every day. You know, it's just, it's not a big deal to sync uh, even on a fairly large network, it's not a big deal to sync changes. So if you have like a, a master backup and it's already done and it spent three days copying, syncing the changes might be done in you know six hours or something. So it's still probable that you could do that online right. or live or swap out drives on a daily basis. I think that's what Mac's, uh, t- Apple's time machine does. Yeah, um, you know, this is kind of one of those things where I like to talk about the time machine stuff because they they try to like make that time machine is like the end all for everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm I I use Macs and I'm I'm not I'm not going to go there and say I'm like some super fanboy or something. Right. But um, you know, they 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 go on TV and they say, well, you know, time machine we have this, and for Windows we have nothing, and that's pretty much what they try to compare it to and say so. But you know, Vista. When Vista came out and all the server 2003, 2008 and stuff, they have uh, basically a, a, a space that's already designed to be duplicate of things while they're live. Because that's the real problem is let's say you're traveling with your laptop. You don't have your time machine. It's not, you know, it's not an right. extra drive that you just have in your you know, bag and that you're constantly doing backups to all the right, time. Right. So what if you open up your PowerPoint presentation and you made some changes to it and you accidentally hit control A and you highlighted everything and hit the delete key and your content from inside your PowerPoint presentation is gone. So now you've got a file that's now empty. So if you're going to recover that file, yes, you would have to go get your time machine back up and you'd have to go and try to do that. So that's going to be a difficult test. But if you're on Vista and they claim it's not in the home edition or the premium edition, it's only in the ultimate and the business edition, but it's not actually true that there's this, uh, there's, basically a space where duplicate and a, and a delta of the changes is done on your computer. And so you can right click on your file that's empty mm-hmm. and you can say, and you can say, show me previous versions. And it has a constant, it does a constant backup of files online and saves them on your local drive. Uh, so, it, I mean, it's easy if you just, you when know. When you say online, you mean like live? Live on your computer, there's right, a space right. on your disk that's basically set aside for for volume storage, basically. And this volume storage is a percentage of your drive; it's twelve percent or so of your drive. And so there are deltas to the changes. And sure. so if you're on, let's say you're on Vista Ultimate, you can check really easy by going to a Word document, right clicking on it, and say you know properties, and you'll get extra tab across the top that will say previous versions. And so you can go back to, and see the previous versions. They're called shadow copies. It's the previous versions 
of the same file that you've made changes to. So you can take a file, you can open it up, highlight it, delete all the content from it, close it, and go to the previous versions and see the last version that the changes were made. Wow. So Vista's doing this in the background, and we don't even know it, basically. Yes, right, exactly. Is that, does that slow up performance? Um, there is a little bit of a performance hit, but it's already doing it, and you don't know it's already doing it, and so does Windows 7. Windows 7 also does the same process, the same thing. Well, why does Vista do it, and then why don't they talk about that? If if they're going to do it, why not at least tell you that they're doing it so you can recover it if, if you need it instead of thinking that it's gone forever? Yeah, you know, I, I wish they had better marketing from that standpoint because I think that it's probably one of the best things. You know, I think the other thing is, too, is that they decided in the home versions and the uh, there's like two levels of business and then there's ultimate. They only advertise that it's actually functioning in the ultimate and the business editions trying to drive people to it. But it's the home users and stuff that really need this because right. the people who are using – Either Ultimate is used to attach to a server or right. it's for games. So you got your smarter client already. That's already the smarter person right. of the group of computer people you're talking about. Or you have your business edition, which does it as well. But if you have the business edition, you're probably on a server. And so if you have 2008 and 2003 server, they do this on the server side for all their shares. So it does need to be configured by the administrator. But So those people who don't know that it's in there, um, look up VSS Admin. But uh, you can configure it on the server so all the shares automatically take snapshots at certain times so you can do previous versions. So they've kind of eliminated the home user from the ability to do this. However, it turns out the product still does it. <laughs> it's still – but you don't. they don't give you the interface to go and get the files. Well, then it shouldn't so, do it. Well, it – that's that that may be true but it's nice that it does do it they just didn't give you the interface so if you go look up some hacks and stuff you can figure out now how to get to those previous snapshots yeah we we do it in forensics because in forensics you're wanting to see all the previous changes that somebody did and they huh. don't even know that they're being saved wow but for the user to be able to use this potentially great fantastic automatic backup that's local on their machine you know besides the fact that you might have a hard drive that dies it's a great process <laughs> and and uh and you know i wish that that kind of stuff was in mac os i wish mac os would keep like a delta snapshot and i'm so surprised microsoft doesn't beat apple over the head with this in advertisement like watch this i can go back to this you know because i get those calls i get like a mom who called and said i was working with my kid on his report and now it's empty you know, he hit a button and it's all gone or something like that. And if they had this ability to right click and say previous versions, they could get that back. Wow. That's amazing. I think that that is amazing that it's like you said, you're right. It's it's a great feature and it's amazing that Microsoft isn't saying anything about it. I mean, I think it is great. And I say that they shouldn't, I, when I say they shouldn't put it in there, I'm saying they should only not put it in there if they're not going to tell anybody that it's there. You know? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, I I think it would be a great thing for them to start, you know, like a marketing, like a, uh, you know, here's a campaign, like an automatic live online backup of, because when you're on a laptop, that's really your downside is like, I'm roaming around. How do I get to something if I accidentally screw up a file? Right. And so, you know, right now on Mac OS, see, Mac could be a little smarter about how they do Time Machine. You know, now you can get, now laptop hard drives, there's been laptop hard drives that are released that are up to 750 gigs, and there's a one terabyte laptop hard drive. So what if for the 750 gig laptop, you partitioned it into two partitions, and one of them is the Time Machine backup? Can you do that with Time Machine? Or you have to use you, you, you know, I haven't tried it, but I'm assuming that you could. I don't see why you couldn't do it on another, on another. you know, it does deltas right. of partitions. Right. So That's I a good idea. I think it's a good idea. To, but 
I mean, even if you can't, they should possibly make that the, the case so that you could have a live Delta backup of your machine huh. in the separate partition. Because most of us are not using, even if we're using a laptop, we're not used to having something larger than, say, a 300 gig hard drive right. in our laptop anyway. Right. So, you know, if you have a 750 and you divide it in two, you've still got the same space, but now you could have a, a backup or, you know, something along those lines. Huh. Good idea. What do you think about Drobo? Because uh, when you were talking about setting up for rated five arrays and stuff, I'm like, maybe I should just buy a Drobo. What do you think about that? Um, I like Drobo. I think it's a, a, I think it's a pretty neat product. I've got several clients that use them, and um, I'm a big fan of how quick and easy they are to set up. Um, the downside is their little share box that they have to make it a NAS storage box is yeah. kind of slow. It doesn't really, it doesn't really perform as fast as most people want it to perform. Uh, if you can live within the constraints of the speed of what most of what you're going to get from a Drobo. Um, cause it is a little slower device than some of the other devices. It does a better job with redundancy and it's automatic, but I think it also is trying to do some compression and stuff on the fly inside the device. Cause I've noticed that the amount of space that files take up after they're, after they're distributed on the drives, it seems to be less. So yeah. I think it's trying to do compression on the fly as well, but it's slowing the device down considerably as well. So, uh, I, I, but I like that it's an automatic, easy to do. I would say don't do this whole mix-up thing. You know, they have this whole advertising program that says, well, if you got a 250 gig hard drive and a 700 gig hard drive, you yeah. can mix them together. Yeah. Um, I would say if you're going to use a Drobo, make sure you're using four of the same size drives because the application automatically figures out what the best algorithm is for the for the uh, Drobo to go into, right. and it's based upon, you know, because RAID 5 is still going to be the best algorithm, and if you have four hard drives in there that are the same size, it will auto or three hard drives in there that are the same size even, it will automatically go to a RAID 5 configuration. Uh, so it'll be faster you know, probably. Well, it's, it's not so much that it's faster, but you, it's, if it's a RAID 5 configuration and it's in the Drobo in that fashion, I can pull those drives out and do a recovery from them. So I'm able to actually recover from the RAID 5 array if there was some failure or something happened to the box. Okay. But when it distributes them across other different stuff, I've had to kind of try to figure out what, what it used whatever day of the week. Hmm. So Because it's trying to distribute the data in some fashion that's robust across whatever the sizes that it has are. Right. right. So I'm a little cautious about just letting it do. You don't get to control it. You don't get to decide. I see. The only decision you have is what size drives I'm going to put in it. So a free NAS on a, in an older computer box is probably better. I love free NAS. I mean, you know, there's so many things you can do with free NAS. Once you want, all you do when you're booting free NAS is that you point it at the drive, you say format the drive and set it up and you give it an IP address. And then you come to the web browser and you do everything else from the web browser. So once the, once the device is done, you can make it an FTP server, a network share, a Samba. It'll, hmm. it'll attach to active directory. I mean, it'll do all the same functions that you would expect any, any commercial NAS box to do. Hmm. Um, and, and so quick and easy, and so easy to control. That's what I'm doing this weekend. I needed I needed a new toy for this weekend. I think that's going to be my new toy. It it is awesome. You'll love it. Cool, man. Thanks for that tip. All right, Scott. You also wanted to talk about um, how to copy a drive after alignment, and uh, you had to program a deep spar disk disk imager. Yeah, it's it's not so much that it's a program. It's a it's a piece of hardware. It's okay. called a, a deep spar disk imager. And so so what would normally happen is so like I get one of these Western Digital drives in that right. has a, a alignment problem, and let's say I get the alignment problem kind of fixed. Okay. Um, it's never perfect. So you you get some sectors you can't read, and there's sometimes where you know maybe one of the heads got destroyed, but there's still you know three other good heads. So 
this tool it's called a deep spar disk imager um it's it's made by deep spar in canada it's a fairly unique tool in some of the functions it can do but it has the ability to do things like turn off one particular head so let's say i hook up a, a drive let's say i hook up this western digital and i start to read data and it looks like it's coming across just fine you can see it sector by sector it'll actually show you live on the screen as it's copying this content so you don't just get this thermometer bar that says i'll be done someday when i'm imaging <laughs> Um, and the other thing is about the tool that makes it very robust is that nothing has to be in order. So in other words, I can have the head skip around anywhere on the drive and anywhere that it reads data that it's successful, it's done. It does not have to read that data again. Huh. And it'll just fill in the holes. So wherever you have sectors that can't be read, you can try multiple passes and kind of improve that as you go until you've whittled it down to just a small section of, of errors. And so you could you can read it, you know, end to end, back to front or from the middle out. You can read it in any way you want to read it. And all it has to happen is that it's got to copy all the sectors that it can finally read and then go back and do these other passes on the bad sectors, uh, trying to improve that. But one of the reasons that I think it's so powerful is that let's say we go back to the situation where I have a bad head. Right. So you normally can't image a drive that would have a bad head because what would happen is you, you get – it starts, it reads data, then it kind of clunks. It go clunk, clunk or something or right. it, you know, it, it times out an error on the head, okay. and it will take months for it to get past the section of, of where this head is bad talking to that side of the platter. Hmm. Whereas what if you could turn it off? If you could turn off the bad head and just say ignore that head, read all the other platters and all the other data from all the other locations, and – then I'll have you know maybe 75% of the drive. It doesn't have to be sequential because data is stored in what's called a zone map. So some people think that you know data is stored in a cylinder so that the data is always up and down through all the platters. And they're divided up into sections across the drive. So it's kind of you know slices of pie on each side. And so you may have you know a four meg chunk of data that's all on one side of one platter that you can read fine. So you may have a Word document or a JPEG or something that you can recover out of that section, even if you were missing all the content from one head. Hmm. And the other stuff will still be complete. So it's a, it's a pretty awesome tool from that standpoint that you can turn off one bad head and read all the other content. And then if I want to, um, so let's say I do a head replacement on it. And maybe I get a different head misaligned and I can't get one head working right. As long as the one that I'm missing is still working, it'll fill in the gaps of the head that I missed. <laughs> so it's pretty awesome from that standpoint. So but that's, you that's have, how you get one head that's bad and then do the disk imager. It'll get all the data. Then you could replace the head that's bad. And as long as that head that you replaced is good, it'll get all the rest of the data is what you're saying. Exactly. Okay. I never have to read the rest of the other data that I already read from the drive. It'll automatically continue on and just fill in the holes that I missed. So when do you use, like, who would buy this and what would they use it for? Only They would only use it after the, for a drive that's uh, been damaged and fixed and you're trying to get all the data off of it or? Well, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that I fixed the drive either. I mean, sometimes the 75% of the drive that I could copy would be fine. I see. I mean, maybe there's something valuable that I have there. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that there's a complete loss just because I'm missing 75% or 25% of the drive. But I mean, normally it would be data recovery companies, but also forensics. So one of the things that happens with forensics people a lot of time is that they image a drive. And if the drive has a bad sector, yeah. either it pads it with zero or it just stops imaging and it just dies. Right. 
so they never actually are able to complete a job. But so this would be a very good thing for forensics people because from a standpoint of you know if you had seventy five percent of the data, at least you have seventy five percent of the data. Right. You've got something to investigate. Uh, whereas if you have no data and you couldn't get a copy done. You have no case to investigate. You're not going to get paid. Wow. Because so, the goal of a data recovery guy or forensics guy is to have one piece of data somebody's willing to pay for. Hmm. It doesn't matter. I mean, you want to get as much as you can. So if they've got a you know a whole library of their dead grandma, you want to get all of the pictures you can. Right. But, but if you only got one picture of the dead grandma and it was the only place that that picture existed, it's probable that you're going to get paid for it. Somebody <laughs> wants what you have, right. even – you know, or somebody's baby when they were born or something. I mean, those memories are, are valuable. That's what I was going to say. Like, so somebody brings you a disc in it's, uh, that's bad and they, or in, in, in your business here, in your company, and they say, I just want pictures of my grandson or whatever. And you could technically just run the deep spar disc image or see if you get those pictures of the grandson and say, job done, right? It, it's possible. It's plausible. I mean, that's not a complete, I mean, because I'll try to do everything. So right. in other words, okay. You know, let, let's say somebody does bring me a drive and it does have one bad head. I read the 75%. I, I will go ahead and spit out what I have. Like I'll go ahead and search for all the pictures I can and spit them out. And then depending on the state of the drive, because sometimes you'll try to do a rebuild and it'll be more complicated than what you're expecting or, or you might you know, not be able to find a head assembly or something that's exactly right. Okay. So you may never get more. So take what you get first and copy that and then progressively do the more uh, disastrous stuff along the way in the hopes that you get a better result. So do you run this d- deep spar first all the time when you get a drive in as the first thing to do or – uh, no, normally I'll go through a diagnostics process first. Okay. So I have some much higher end, more expensive $13,000, $15,000 equipment I where I'll go through an analysis of the drive. And so I'll look and I'll say, you know, do I have a bad board? Do I have a bad head assembly? Do I have a bad, do I have media damage? And so I'll go through this more extensive process. But usually I'll know within a couple of minutes in most cases of whether or not the deep spar disc imager is going to be able to handle this or not if it I can see. read data. But uh, it's I mean, just, it, it's just one of the tools in your arsenal, basically. It's one of the tools in the arsenal. It's a great tool, though, because uh, most people use software imaging. They're used to using something that just does kind of like DD or something that just does an image of a hard drive. Right. And in a lot of cases, uh, software fails where hardware can be successful. Hmm. Interesting. Good tool. I'm, I'm going to pull up a picture of that right now. Where do you get that DeepSpar disk image? Uh, DeepSpar.com has a whole list of their tools that they actually use. They're one of the best vendors, at least from a data recovery standpoint. Um, but uh, the deep, D-E-E-P-S-P-A-R.com. And so their tools are not cheap, but uh, and they all come from Canada. But at least from that perspective, if you're willing to spend the money, if you're not willing to spend the money, then I'm the data recovery guy you can sit into. <laughs> so, uh, uh, I mean, this isn't going to be for you know the home user. It's right. a little black box, but this little black it. box is going to cost upwards of you know thirty five hundred dollars. Okay. Yeah, I see a picture of it. Yep. Pretty basic, but it probably definitely worth it if you're doing data recovery. Yeah, it's uh, it is the. I mean, if if I only had one tool to choose from, no matter what, whether it was this, you know, thirteen. Well, I don't know if I had a thirteen thousand dollar machine, maybe not. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, if if I had a budget of less than five thousand dollars and I only had one tool to buy, this would be it. Huh. Cool. So, Scott, you mentioned earlier about uh, laptop drives and the size of laptop drives are getting bigger. This isn't going to be a bad thing for data recovery. I mean, 
probably good for you, but bad bad for the consumer. Like the, the drives might not be as reliable is what I'm trying to say. Right. I, I think you're probably right that, you know, obviously the larger the drive gets, the less reliable it's probably going to be. That seems to be the trend that we're following from a standpoint of heat and, and density and things like that. It makes it a lot harder to do a recovery or a rebuild uh, a more dense drive. And now that we have, because now already on the shelf for like the last 30 days, there's already been the new 640 gig laptop hard drives. And now uh, they just released the 750s. So 750s have just started hitting the shelves over the last week and two weeks. And there's a one terabyte laptop hard drive, uh, standard spinning disk that has been released, but it's a little thicker. It's like a 0.12 millimeters thicker than a standard drive. So the terabyte ones can't quite fit into the standard laptop. They're more the kind of like the 500 gigs when they came out in December, they were a little bit fatter. And huh. then they, they gradually got more, you know, more s- smaller in size and thinner. So eventually we're going to get to the terabyte in, a, uh, you know, in every laptop. But what are, the, well, what are they for external cases then? You mean they won't fit into a laptop or? Yeah, they're a little bit thicker. So, I mean, they f- might fit in some laptops, but, you know, not like a thin MacBook Pro or something like that. They don't really fit very conveniently in some of those. But uh, usually they're used in the external devices right now because they're still a little bit thicker. Right. Or if you had some other, you know, uh, you know, I don't know, like a PlayStation 3 or something like that, that might actually have a little more space to put it in. I see. Um, now, we also have uh, the new SSD hard drives. Um, OCZ announced that they have a Colossus SSD drive, which is going to be a one terabyte SSD. Um, wow. And that one's that was just announced like 30 days, a little less than 30 days ago, and it's uh it's going to be about $2,200 for a one terabyte SSD. <laughs> so they do have a 512 gig SSD as well that they're releasing for like 1,200 or so. Wow. But, uh, yeah. Now the the as the size of SSD drives get larger, does that affect um, data reliability, like the reliability of data as like the other drives do, or is it a different beast? Well, uh, I mean, it is different in the process, but I mean, SSD drives are a potential risk just like, and maybe a higher potential risk. Initially, the SSD drives are not going to be as susceptible to, okay, I dropped my laptop and some bad thing happened to my data and I got a scratch on the platter. Mm-hmm. So you don't have that issue. Right. But when an SSD drive goes, uh, I mean, there's it's it's all or nothing in most cases. You've got to repair something to get it working, uh, and if it isn't repairable, or if there's a chip that's cracked or burnt or something, you may lose everything. So there's no gray area where you can sometimes get pictures back by turning off one head or something like that. It's a, it's either you know game over. And once you get to this size, once you start getting to you know 750 and one terabytes. The convenience of trying to do a backup and the amount of time it takes to do a backup becomes colossal from that perspective. Um, you get you get to a spot where you know maybe you're in a hotel room and you would normally have backed up the my documents folder before, and now you can't sync the quantity of data that you have in the amount of time that you have or the bandwidth that you have from a hotel room. So uh, the the reason that's important is people get aggravated. They get to a spot where like, no, this takes too long. I'll do it tomorrow. Right. And it's always tomorrow. It's never. Are you talking about SSD drives or both of them in that case? Both of them in that case. I mean, once you get to like, you know, one terabyte, what is, what's going to be your issues there? Now, now it seems to me SSD drives, they, the, I've had several of them over the last two or three years and they kind of deteriorate, they age poorly. Hmm. So you start getting into the situation where they seem to be slower and they start having more fundamental problems and data seems to be more spread out, taking longer for it to read over the di- over the physical memory. Um, so you end up having some more robust problems uh, wow. from that standpoint. So it, Can you get that speed back? 
I have not even reformatting and redoing the whole disk as it ages and it has bad blocks and has other problems. No, I have not seen any way to rejuvenate it and get it back to like you could do that in theory with a hard drive. You can actually say if you're a sector and it takes longer than, you know, 200 milliseconds to respond, then put you in the bad block list and get rid of you. Right. Um, but you can't really, I don't see a way to do that right now with solid state disks. We're, we're, we're still at the beginning of you know infancy with solid state hard drives from that perspective that we don't have all the options and we don't have all the ability to talk to them like we did with hard drives. Yeah, and, and for me, it seems like there's no question, I could be off, it seems like there's no question that they're going to be the future. You know what I mean? I think they're going to phase right. out the other drives. Well, um, I, I think that you're right for laptops. I think for laptops, because of portability, um, yeah. It's 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 a much more robust drive to have normally, and most people replace their laptops. I mean, they're kind of in a cycle of every two to three years replacing their laptops. So, you know, as soon as they start to exhibit some kind of problem, people just go buy a new laptop these days. They don't even think twice about it. Right. So, uh, uh, you know, unless you're a Mac user and spent three grand on it. But, <laughs> but you know, outside of that, I think that you're probably dealing with, uh, you know, a just a different set of problems. And I think spinning disks are not going to go away in desktops and servers. I think for, I think we'll have those for a while to come another, you know, seven, 10 years. Um, just because we're, we're still in this stage where if, if it's in a desktop, it's not for portability. It doesn't really matter how big it is or how hot it gets or how much power it uses. If, if you can have a 10 terabyte hard drive in your desktop and it's spinning, you're going to be okay with that. Well, would, I, I mean, I agree with you there totally. But do you think after those 10 years, it's going to go over to solid state? I think, uh, well, solid state in the terminology of solid state, meaning there's no moving parts, then yes. that's true. But not in what we know solid state to be today. Right. I don't think that NAND in the existing format is the long-term solution. I think once we get to you know somewhere around 2015 or, or 2017, that – there's there's been a lot of experimentation with storing data in pulses in solid pieces of metal. And uh, it seems that there's a preliminary prototype that's been made by a guy named Stuart Parkins, who is the designer of the current head that's in most hard drives. And uh, he's he's got – it's called racetrack memory is what it's called right now. Uh, it's a marketing term, but it but it's originally known under something called domain walls. And so the process by which they use physics to store content – is much more robust than what we're using now, and you don't have this failure rate like you have with uh, memories and, and NAND chips and stuff and how slow they are. But NAND is going through a cycle where they're rebuilding the chips. Uh, they're starting to use different types of cells and different types of technology to try to improve the speed and make the, the storage space bigger. Because right now our big problem with NAND for solid-state disks is that we only have chips that go to 32 gigs. So right now... If you wanted to make a big giant drive, you'd have to have lots of chips that are 32 gigs. Huh. And we're going to what's called triple bit cells and things, which have you know 64 gig or something more. So we'll actually have a bigger bigger chip for a smaller amount of space. But we're a, we're kind of a long way away from a high speed fast right, uh, right. piece of equipment. I, we got to back up for a second. Did you say you're going to be able to store data in solid pieces of metal? Yes. That's what I said. Wow. How does that work? Well, if you look up uh, racetrack memory, you will find uh, that there's already been a prototype that's already been built. And one of the things about racetrack memory, and there's a lot of physics involved, and I've read through it like 100 times <laughs> in trying to understand every single thing about it, and it's very difficult to huh. completely grasp the huh. whole thing. But if you search for it, you're going to see that there's um, 
the state of an atom, the way that he stores data, this will be the first time I think in history that we've ever stored data without making a change to the state of an atom. What? This is messed up. This is amazing. This is it, amazing. It is amazing. And, you know, normally I'd be saying, well, you know, this guy's crazy or it won't take over or whatever. Right, but, right. Uh, I mean, after he designed the head, which is, you know, the basis for the current head that we use, I mean, he's a physicist. And right. from what he's done, the GMR head, which is primarily the basis for all of the heads in current hard drives, I mean, this is the guy who designed that. And so he's got a track record, and he works for IBM basically. And like they spun it off into some other unit when it's still part of you know the whole development side or something. But he's uh, he's got a good track record, and he's built a prototype. He has some problem right now with uh, communication with the device. It has some sort of speed problem with uh, how fast he can communicate. But it's it's the same speed as a regular hard drive is right now, <laughs> storing it in solid metal, which means we have less potential for loss. Of, of data. Wow. But, you know, just Google racetrack memory and I you'll will. see pictures and the whole, the whole basic idea for it. That's very cool. That's amazing. <laughs> All right, Scott, we're, we're just about out of time. Um, one of the cool things that happened about this, that happened about this uh, show was uh, one of my listeners tweeted, or yeah, he tweeted me and he said that uh, Patrick Norton had tweeted about the podcast and then uh, I was talking to you about it and it turns out he mentioned you in TechZilla and that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, uh, Patrick Norton, I had been on uh, DLTV back in the day when, when he had uh, been doing that for Ziff Davis. And so I had done a couple of episodes with him, and uh, I'm still looking for a couple of them to be published. There's uh, two or three that I did, and then there's two or three others that I had talked about um, how the private investigator community and stuff works. But uh, So we became friends, and uh, now he's over at TechZilla, and he mentioned me on the show a couple of days ago, and then he tweeted about it, about your show. And so your show has been, you know, at least listed in Patrick Nor- Norton's tweet. <laughs> That's great. We, we got to get more people tweeting about us. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I wanted to say again, thanks. Uh, I love doing these. Sh- I, I really love doing the show because you always give me ideas of new things to buy. And um, I, I, you know, so much, you know, more about hard drives than anybody I've ever met. And it's uh, it's a pleasure talking to you about them. Well, great. Thank you. Well, uh, anything you want to plug, Scott, just uh, about well, your website? Um, or? Well, the next thing I have, well, my, my website is myharddrivedied.com, so most people know that by now. Um, I've been putting a few more new things up there. I'm about to redo the whole site now okay. and get a whole uh, whole set of like listing these podcasts and all the shows that I'm in and Computer America and stuff like that and try to list that content. But um, my, my next classes, I have a class in San Diego coming up in a couple of weeks, and then I have a class in Washington, D.C., uh, where I teach how to do data recovery and rebuild hard drives and stuff. Um, so SANS is where I'm teaching for. So if you go to myharddrivedie.com and you look at the classes, you'll see my next classes for SANS. And uh, and I do have a new video up that I'm about to post to. Uh, uh, I did DEF CON and I did a how to recover your RAID array using porn. So, uh, <laughs> so it's not really porn. It's, you know, it's just, you know, some, it was just sed- brilliant marketing sed- is what seductive it is. pictures, but <laughs> yes, it's, uh, but, uh, yeah, that's the way it goes. So, but, uh, but you know, it's an interesting video and, uh, it's one of the funniest DEF CON talks I've done. So <laughs> very smart, very smart. I think you're going to get a lot of people watching that. So definitely go to my Check it out. And, uh, Scott, uh, I'll be talking to you in a month. Okay, great. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Well, that's it for this episode of My Hard Drive Died. I'll see everybody next time.